Before we begin, we wanted to mention that this podcast relies on listener support. If you'd like to help us out, there are a few ways you can do that. One is by telling your friends about the podcast or anyone who you think might be interested. Another would be to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you're in a place to donate financially and you'd like to do that, we have a Patreon. You can find that at patreon.com slash backonthegrind. Signing up as a patron gets you access to things like our extended cuts of our episodes, as well as other bonus content. Thank you. Welcome to Back on the Grind, a podcast about life, music, people, and the stories that bring us closer. I'm Folk Punk Dad, and my guest today is Derek Zanetti of the Homeless Gospel Choir. A road veteran for over a decade, the Homeless Gospel Choir has toured extensively, including multiple trips to Europe. He's played shows with AJJ, Frank Turner, Pat the Bunny, My Chemical Romance, and Anti-Flag, and he's released much of his music with AF Records. Derek's songs dive deep into subjects, including politics and mental health, topics which we also had the chance to discuss in our conversation. Derek, it's so great to talk to you and to meet you. Well, I'm thrilled that you're here. I'm thankful for your kindness, and I'm excited about this conversation. Let's get to it, bud. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, the first thing I'd love to talk about is what are you up to musically these days? Well, um, I have. We um, thank you for asking that question, Will. I, I'm, I'm glad that you did. I'm, I've been spending a lot of time by myself working on some new acoustic songs, TBH. Um, we had just, uh, the last tour that we did was in February with um, Cuckoo Kangaroo, one of, uh, some of our dear pals, and we were doing some West Coast dates with those fellas. And we ended that tour right before Valentine's Day. And um, I've been home since then, just like honing in some of my acoustic songs and things that I've been wanting to make. And trying to paint some um some pictures in my mind about about some acoustic songs. So I've been, you know, just sitting up in my office. I've been uh, trying to nail down some specific stories that I want to tell um and 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 what what, you know, the arrangement and things like that. So it's been um just in my own life for the last couple of months I have been just in the office um painting pictures inside my mind trying to write trying to write some poetry to it. That's awesome, and that's also exciting to hear. Um, how's the how's the process been? Has it been going well? Has it been frustrating? How's uh, that going? It's I, I'm so encouraged because I have just an ocean's worth of like really good pals who are always out there making music and are always out there on tour. And when there's moments where I feel like maybe all the good songs are written, or maybe there's not a good song in my heart today. What am I ever going to do? I'm able to look at some of my friends who are out there who are writing amazing songs and are touring um, and playing amazing shows and are and are filled with love and gratitude. And I was like, well, maybe there's some hope left in this old guitar for me, too. And I'll get back in there and I'll give it a try. And, I, I you know, the same as anything else that, you know, you're working hard at. If everybody hit a home run every time they went to bat, I mean, it would be an impossible situation. So sometimes you sit there and you just write a dang stinker and it's just a terrible song. And it's like, man, this bridge sucks. Both the choruses suck. The verses aren't any good. The melody's not even that good. But I spent my evening working on my instrument, working on my poetry, 
massaging and kneading and working the process to hopefully go ahead and get something out that I enjoy and that like impresses my friends. Because if I'm going to be honest with you, Will, and I'm going to be, that's the um, that's my number one thing that I like to do is to impress my friends. Is when the new record comes out to get a call from someone whose musical taste I also value, and they're like, "That new record is straight fuego," and they're super stoked about how well that you did. So that's my I like to I like to do that, and I like to I like to try and impress myself and make something that is that is that is um, special. But sometimes it takes time, and sometimes you get two days worth of stinkers in a row, and then you have to take another day off because you have to work, and then sometimes you have to go to weddings, and sometimes you have to go to funerals, and sometimes you have to go to the dentist, and you can't play guitar every single day, and you can't write even a bad song every single day, and it takes a couple days in a row of writing a bad song, and then you do get a good one, and you grab it right by the ass, and you try and hold on to it for as long as you possibly can, and like, you know, um, take it. Um, But yeah. I've been doing okay. I've been writing good songs and stinker songs and trying to throw the stinkers away. That's the way to do it. I, yeah, I totally love that. I, I take the same approach when writing. Um, sometimes I do, uh, take a month out of my year and try to write a song every single day. And I normally get one keeper out of the 30 songs that I write in a month. Um, that's how it normally goes. And sometimes you're only sitting there for what an hour and a half, two hours, three hours. Who has a full eight hours in one day to sit there with their guitar trying to work on something? Very few people are afforded that luxury. So even whenever you go ahead and say, "I want to be a full time musician, a full time songwriter," what does that even mean? Forty hours a week of you being in a specific place trying to work out a song? No, I think we're all in a place in our lives where we have a bunch of different things going on. Some folks are in school. Some people work a second job. Some people are taking a pottery class or maybe they're taking a knitting class or something super fun like that. And they just don't have extra time in their week to, you know, work on songs. So, you know, when you were in high school, you had all the extra time in the world. You can get a whole bunch of pals together, rip through a record in a week and a half. And maybe that's, maybe that's your contribution to it. Where maybe now there's just more busy things in your life and you have to take your time with it. And I think that that's good too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that I, I've always said or recently said that in order to be a full-time artist, it doesn't mean that you're not also something else uh, or doing something else. You know, the, the, you, you, you taste the pleasures of life. Um, and, and, you know, you, you get a chance to, when you really, when you really, really go for it and you really, really work for it. I know that the times where I've appreciated being on tour the most is whenever I was leaving like a job that I hated, or I was like, man, if I never go back to working for the dang hot dog stand ever again, I'll be fine. Even if I have to be out on the road and starve before I have to go back to the hot dog shop. And like it, having a job was like, oh, wait a second. If this tour doesn't do, you know, well financially and I have to come home and work my regular job, I was going to have to work that regular job anyway. So it's it's a really good balance to be a working musician and to have other things because it does give you the inspiration you need to, you know, write good songs. Because sometimes you do have a boss who's a piece of shit and you're like, wait a second, now I get to write this song about my piece of shit boss. Bing, 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 bing. And you, there's just, you know, bells and whistles going on inside you. Totally. Yeah. You know, one of the best ways to be an artist or a musician or a songwriter is to experience life and take it all in. And, uh, you know, that's essential. Yeah. Um, so 
Jared, we've talked about what you've been doing recently. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you got started. Okay. Um, well, I, I was in about 2009. I was um, I was I was playing some shows locally in my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I was just going out and playing like an open mic, and then I was just going out and playing like a bar show, and I had a few songs, maybe five or six. And it was just me and an acoustic guitar and literally G, C, and D in a different style and arrangement. And that's it. Nothing fancy at all. And I just had some feelings that I wanted to share. And like this Ramonesy, Johnny Cash type of a type of a delivery to it. And I just wanted to go ahead and just, just go out there and just give it heck. So I did. And I would play some shows and then kid, you know, people from the people from the DIY scene would go to these you know, I would be there at the open mics performing their own songs. And then they'd be like, oh, there's a show. Um, Paul Baraboo's coming to town. Do you want to play that show? Oh, Andrew Jackson Jihad's coming to town now, currently AJJ. Do you want to go ahead and, and and play that gig? That would be fun, wouldn't it? Oh, um, and then, they, you know, there would be these other opportunities to go ahead and play, you know, shows whenever, you know, uh, bigger bands would come out on tour and I just started to do that. And, and when I would be asked to do it, I would, I would say yes. And then I went on tour with my friend, Aaron Buchanan, who was in the band revolution radio. And we toured in 1982 Toyota Tercel hatchback. And we went from Asheville, North Carolina, all the way up to Pittsburgh. And we played just a bunch of like small little clubs and bars and DIY shows. And that was like my very first real official um, go for it tour. That was in, um, I did a tour. I did, I did another tour. Um, I did another tour right around that same time with a band from Pittsburgh called playoff beard. And I think that was actually, um, the second official tour that I did. And that was, that was down the East coast too. And I still have that poster hanging in my office. This isn't my office, but, um, I have it. I, 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 whenever we moved, I found it in, in an old suitcase in one of my old cases and I still have it. I didn't have enough money to get a second screen to make a two-color poster. So what I did do was I just made rainbow prints of everything where I'd put a dollop of red and green and yellow and blue, and then I'd pull the squeegee down, and then we would make like a rainbow. It would be a multicolor uh, tour announcement until the end when all the colors smushed together and it was just like that real shitty purple color. And then that's, you know, that's how like the last, you know, 30 of them were, I think. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's great. I'm curious, what did what do you feel like you learned after your first tour or two? Can you think of something that you learned early on? Well, I knew I when I first started to do it, I was like, man, wouldn't it be nice? Like, you know, I don't know if I could be a full time musician, but I certainly could do it on the weekends. And I certainly could, you know, just ask my friends to go along in it. And the very first tour that we did. Um, you know, you would play some shows were past the hat style. And at that point in time, uh, the house show, uh, the house show scene was, uh, was doing quite well. And you would play a house show somewhere in, you know, Virginia, uh, in Virginia beach and, you know, 60 kids would show up to a backyard show on a Tuesday night. And it would, it was like a real, it was like a real fun wild experience. And, um, we played, we played a show, a house show in Philadelphia and we played, 
Um, we played this one show in South Carolina and we go to like set everything in and like set everything up and like tune our instruments and like, man, no one's here. And then at seven o'clock, right whenever the flyer said to be there, it like termites from the woodwork, a whole horde of kids show up with patches and bicycles and, 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 and one gallon water jugs, you know, filled with liquor and booze. And they showed up to the, they showed up to the garage and we had like this really kick-ass show. It was super duper fun. Um, but what it showed me was like, you know, even by modestly doing it and like screen printing my own t-shirts and making burn CDs and selling them for $5, I came home from being on tour, like a week's worth of touring with the same money that I would have made working my crappy job that I absolutely didn't want to go back to. So I was like, well, if I can practice some frugality and I can, you know, mix in a little bit of luck with some social networking so that I can, you know, figure out a way to book my own tour or have a buddy help me book my own tour and, um, you know, and the like, I think it's possible for, to, to go ahead and have a go for it. So I did. And, and that's, that's how it all started. That's great. That's awesome. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, we've talked a little bit before about, um, well, we just touched on the fact that we've, we've both experienced some mental health ups and downs. And I'm curious how music in particular has played a role in your mental health journey? Um, that's a wonderful question, Will. Thanks for asking it. Um, I think what, um, I, I don't know what it would be like in any different type of a way. So I don't want to say something that's not true, but I do know that I, I've had the courage to be able to ask for help because I saw people that I admired and looked, looked at as, as either some sort of leader or some sort of a, um, a mentor in some way also ask for help. And before I was able to do that, I do think that I was in a super bad spot. And I think I was spiraling in many ways and making bad decisions, not only for myself, but for people who were around me and being dishonest about addiction and being dishonest about, um, about my struggles. And, 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 um, it wasn't until I was able to ask, uh, ask professional people for help that I was able to, to, um, to get better. And I think that's the, I think that's the goal, right? Is to get, is to be better, is to be better people and to get better and to figure out what type of a path we have to get on to get there. And I, I, I feel I'm probably super privileged. I, I know that I am in this regard that I had a bunch of people that like helped me with my sobriety and like people who really helped me take it seriously and people who like fucking drove me to shit and like made sure that I got to my appointments and like Brooke Pridemore, who I love with all my heart, drove me to AA and was like, maybe, you know, maybe this will work for you. I'm practicing sobriety too. I'm a homie. I'll fucking sort you out. And like, I don't know, man. It was sick. Like it was sick to have people who knew what it was like to hurt and who knew what it was like to feel like a fish out of water. And it's a scary thing to talk about whenever you feel like you're not in control of your own thoughts. Whenever you think that you're hearing voices and you feel panicked all the time, you feel like the world is ending and all the things that you thought were going to save the world like punk rock and recycling aren't and everything's going to shit and the people that you know and you trust are getting sick from COVID and possibly dying. Like it was a lot to make you feel like you're going crazy all the time. And it really, it really did send you into some spirals. And um, I'm just very, very privileged and very, very fortunate that I've just 
through my life, I've just found a good community of people of who love me and that want what's good for me and aren't, you know, aren't necessarily, you know, interested in any of the social benefits that come along with being like a mentor or like, oh, I helped old Derek's and then he kicked the booze or whatever, but just like call you on your birthday and ask you how you're doing and like have met my mom and have stayed at my house and have had dinner at my mother's house. Like true, real friends who like, want you to be good. So I'm, 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 I'm sorry, but I, 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 it's a great privilege to have that type of help and to have that type of aid. And I, it's really been a guide for me. So I'm, I'm super thankful to my loving friends who have gone beyond what would be even normal or what people would find to be like even socially safe and like grabbed a hold of my hair and like forced me into the right direction because they're like, I'm not going to let you be a fuck up. I'm going to fucking, we're going to get through it together. And I just, I feel super blessed and super gr grateful for it. That's beautiful. Derek, thank you so much for sharing that. I can definitely relate myself just personally as, as someone uh, who's had a drinking problem and I've been sober for a while now. And, um, and you know, that just the community coming together, um, I would not be where I was with, without community. And you're right. It's uh, very privileged, you know, it's a thing that so, so, so many people don't have. And I think that one of the really beautiful things about, uh, DIY music is, its propensity to create those connections and create that community and encourage that asking for help. Mm -hmm. So, um, Derek, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the role that punk music has played in your life, uh, especially regarding uh, politics. Yeah, totally. Um I was raised in like a super conservative right-wing evangelical family. Um, we went to church every single Sunday, speaking in tongues, rolling around on the floor, fake healings, all that type of mess. Um, Appalachian, not Appalachian style where they're bringing out snakes and, you know, things like that, but, you know, passing the basket twice in case people forgot, just like snake oil salesman type shit, you know? And like, there were certain toys we weren't allowed to play with. We weren't allowed to play with Smurfs or Thundercats or He-Man or, or, or any of that type of stuff. And we weren't allowed to celebrate Halloween or go to the movies, see certain movies or listen to the radio. And there was like a really, really um, uh, interesting and unique and narrow way to, to, to grow up and to live. And it was something that I didn't get out of until I was in my 20s. So I was, you know, 20 years old. It took, it was a proper, true, um, submersive. I, I'm only going to use the word cult because it's the only word I can think of. I can't think of another word to describe it other than that's what it happens to be. Um, so I was, you know, I, I knew that there was quote unquote secular music. I knew that those things existed and I knew that there were good, good hearted people in the world. Like Larry, the guy who changes our tires down the street at the mechanic shop, he listened to ACDC. Certainly Larry's not going to hell. He's just a regular old guy who's listening to ACDC on the radio. You know what I mean? Like certainly Jesus doesn't want Larry to go to hell. So I started just put two and two together of like, well, what parts of the world am I able to peer into and see and find out. And do I even believe any of that mess? I'm not sure that I do. Um, so, um, I had a, I had a clock radio. It was, um, <clears throat> it was a little teeny, um, uh, 
clock radio that had a cassette tape player in there that you can put a cassette tape in and you can listen to. And it also had a record button in that you could make live mixtapes off of radio dubs. And we had two radio stations in Pittsburgh, 105.9 The X and 104.7 The Revolution. And they had like punk nights, like Sunday nights from like 8 to 10. It was Edge of the X. And they would play new punk bands like, like The Offspring. And they would play new punk bands like Bad Religion. And it would be like this new thing that you would get to see and witness and experience. And I would listen to those and I would make mixtapes on the radio after my parents went to bed. I would listen, I would listen to the I would listen to the tapes uh, through my headset and I would make these I would make these dub tapes when whenever I could to um to the radio. But in sixth grade my punk stories, I guess, would start in sixth grade in 1994. Um, uh, I heard Green Day Dookie for the first time. My friend Jake Colvin Senzo gave it to me on cassette tape. And he said, you know that weird music that you've been, that we've been looking, you know, that we've been hearing? And, you know, I think I found some of it. It's super strange. I think you'll like it. And I listened to it and I was like, these are my fucking people, period. This is, this is the sandwich that I've been looking for my entire life. And I just, I just took a big, huge bite into it. And, you know, it was not the same as it is today where people have the internet and you can just go ahead and say what cool punk bands are there. And then you have a list of a million trillion punk bands that you can check out. You know, you had to do a little homework and you had to buy a record and look in the liner notes and see what bands that those bands thanked. Oh, you know, MXPX thanked Social Distortion and um, No Effects. What's no effects? I have to find out about it. So you buy yourself a no effects CD and then they thank a million other bands, Lag Wagon and Strung Out and you find out about Minor Threat and then you listen to Fugazi for the first time and then you know your life, you don't need to look for music anymore. You found the perfect band. But um, yeah, that was, that was it. That's how I, you know, that's just how I, that's how I had to find it. I would go to Century 3 Mall and to Camelot Music and I would, I would, I would, listen to CDs and, and find the bands. If you like this band, then you'll like this band. But yeah, it was, it was a big secretive thing for me. I wasn't allowed to listen to it. I wasn't allowed to participate in that culture. So it was very closeted for me and my celebration of music and my celebration of, of finding punk rock. It happened. It was that way for a number of years. How did it feel when it was no longer that way where you didn't have to hide it anymore? Well, you know, the guilt and shame that comes along with knowing that you could possibly be burning in hell for listening to No Doubt. Um, uh, it, it still gnaws at me, even now as a 40-year-old, as someone who's far removed from that, the fear-mongering that, they, that was placed into me as a young child talking about the devil and hell and sin and eternity and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And you tell that to a five-year-old long enough, it doesn't matter how old they get. Those stories are still you know, they're stuck back there. And there's, as much as I've gone to therapy and as much as I've tried to, you know, even drink those memories away in my past, you know, they're still very much present and still very much there. And it's an active work that is now my responsibility. It's an active working that I have to do in order to, you know, fight those demons off. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it don't work. Mm. Yeah, that makes total sense. Everyone I know, and I have some people very close to me who experienced religious trauma when they were younger, um, it's it's the same thing. It, it stays there. Even when you intellectually know it's not true, mm-hmm. uh, no, I'm not going to hell, um, it 
the thoughts are there. And, um, you know, it, it's just so all the more important to be uh, mindful and helpful for young people and kids and what we what messages we do share with them and how we do communicate with them and the the settings we we put them in you know um yeah and if you just take like just the teachings of jesus christ i think they're all super duper awesome like be kind to your neighbor be thoughtful and share if someone doesn't have something and you have extra make sure that your neighbor is provided for don't go provoking people into anger make sure that you're patient and kind and trustworthy whenever you say something you fucking better mean it you know like be a person of integrity and and, and give people the benefit of the doubt when you see somebody who's down on their luck who doesn't have two nickels to rub together w- what's our responsibility to turn our head and not see that person our responsibility is to invite the people who never get invited to dinner. And that's what I believe to be the good news or the gospel of Jesus Christ. Even though I think it's all a a, a very nice story to make us feel better. Like when I look at who the person happens to be who says those things and like the example that they set in those stories, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful way to model your life after. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, if I could be half as kind as Jesus was kind with the example that he said, I think I would be, I would think I would be great. It's all the hocus pocus with water into wine and healing blind people and walking on water and the rest of that type of shit that kind of makes me feel a little hocus pocusy about it. But the idea of kindness, I fuck with all the way. I Man, I love the way you just articulated Jesus's message uh, about love and kindness. That's, that's the most important stuff yeah. in, in the Bible for me. Um, I happen to be a, a Christian myself. And I and, said with, with Endless Mike, that's, that's, yeah. I, I thought it was great. And listen, I don't really, Mike Miller is the closest thing to a Christian I think I've ever seen. As far as someone who puts their fucking money where their mouth is, he's number one for me. Like he is truly about it. That's great to hear. Um, He's a true servant of the people. Like I think he's, yeah, I think he's the real deal. That's awesome. I mean, that's the sense I got just from my one conversation with him. Um, so you've mentioned Pennsylvania a few times and, um, I, I have been on tour recently with my friend Sean, whose artist name is S. Reedy. Um, he's a really big fan of yours, and oh, and yeah. I I told him I was interviewing you, and I asked him what would you ask Derek, and he said, well, I would probably ask him about Pennsylvania, and he seems to he said you seem to have a love hate relationship with it, and where are you with that, and could you talk a little bit about your uh, relationship to Pennsylvania. I love Pennsylvania. I'm a Pennsylvanian all the way. Um, I grew up on, uh, in Southwestern PA, um, in Pittsburgh and I lived there for, uh, for 38 years. And, uh, my partner and I just recently moved to Lancaster, Pennsylvania to live among all the big, big, huge farms and everything out here. It's a lot, it's a lot more quiet. It's a lot more slow pace for me. I like it. But there's something just about Pennsylvania. There's something old about it. There's something, there's something, um, uh, I love going to like old auctions and flea markets. Pennsylvania is a haven for flea markets. Um, I just, I, I love, I love the old roadside attractions on the old Lincoln Highway and taking the Pennsylvania Turnpike. Now, I do have to say that the Pennsylvania Turnpike is, is the most expensive stretch of highway across the entire U.S. 
it is that's not a Christian price will. I'll tell you that right now. That's a not that's not a good example of being a good steward of our tax dollars in my humble opinion. And I think that the state of Pennsylvania could do a better job of maybe reallocating those funds and maybe lessening cuz we don't even have people to work the booths anymore. That's the thing. Can I say something? I'm going to get a little bit upset here about about it just here for a moment for you will. It really does bite my ass because we charged all those extra fees for the fucking turnpike because we wanted to create what? Better jobs for blue-collar, middle-class workers. And the second that we had a chance to consent, okay, we're going to raise the tolls up so that we can go ahead and pay people a fair wage. We get rid of all the people and we just have a fucking robot robot monitoring your traffic. So I was like, Pennsylvania Turnpike, eat my shit, kind of. Um, but yeah, I thought it was, I think it's low. I think it's a low move. Um, it would, I would be completely okay with paying 30, you know, some odd dollars to go from Pittsburgh to Philadelphia if Will of Folk Punk Dad was just sitting there in the booth like, howdy there, everybody. How's your day going? It's going to be six bucks. And I'm like, sick, Folk Punk Dad. Thanks a pile for, you know, working and, and you know, representing humanity. But it's not. You don't even get to meet a stranger. It's just a camera who watches your license plate. No, thank you. Amen. So well said. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, well, great. So, um, one one question I have is, yeah. if you have any stories that have really stuck with you from touring um, and the the scene, things maybe stories you might tell um, over and over again. Anything you'd like to share? Um, I just love to I, I just love to tour a whole bunch. I mean, when I was when I was I was touring a whole bunch, especially before 2020, before the you know, before the pandemic, um, I was touring a whole bunch. And that's the only thing that I wanted to do. And um, I feel very, very fortunate that I've had a chance to do all different types of it from, you know, touring in my friends, 19 um, 82 Toyota Tourcell and just playing acoustic shows in people's basements, um, doing a whole bunch of playing big, huge clubs and, and, and everything in between. Um, I just, I love to do it. I, it just, I love to make new friends and I love to travel and I, I really love to just go ahead. Can, if I can just be absolutely truthful with you as I used to go for the crab rangoons because I love to have Chinese, I love to get Chinese takeout. And I would say what town would have the best crab rangoons. And I would order, you know, three or four different orders of crab rangoons when I would be in Indianapolis or when I would be in Fort Wayne, Indiana, or who has the best crab rangoons in the state of Indiana, Terre Haute, South Bend. You got to go to every single little place that you can possibly go to Andersonville, go down to Kokomo, hang out with Joe from Harley Poe and see if there's any good, uh, you know, if there's any good crab rangoons in that neighborhood. So um, I like to, you know, go ahead and find nice places to eat. I collect garbage pail kid cards and cassette tapes. So for years, I would go ahead and 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 try and find, you know, rare cassette tapes that I needed for my collection, and that was a huge part of tour, especially when I got to be fancy and I'd be on tour in a bus, and I was with, you know, out on tour with some big, huge, fancy, rich band, and then I would get into town super duper early, and I would just have like a big, huge bottle of water in my backpack and a map on my phone. I'm like, I'm gonna hit five record shops before sound check, and I would just put my baseball hat on and I would just cruise the town and find as many places as I could to buy cassette tapes or garbage pit. most recently it's garbage pail kid cards but um 
Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's the whole purpose that I like to tour. And I, you know, for a long time, I just stayed in people's homes. We weren't a hotel band um, recently because everybody's older and I have to wake up and my back has to feel good, which is another thing that I want to say about hospitality. If there's a band that's coming over to your house to stay, tidy up a little bit. I think it's okay to say tidy up a little bit. If you're going to have the bravery to ask them to come over to your home, make sure that it's a nice welcoming thing. DIY shouldn't mean don't improve yourself. It should mean do it yourself to the best way that you possibly can be and to be a beacon of, of, of light and life and goodness. And we used to say at people's houses all the time, but I stayed in enough houses that were absolutely crusty and bad and gross that I now know that it's better for my own mental health and for my own just physical health too to go ahead and spend $70 on a hotel room than for me to stay on in some weird floor somewhere where they're like, you know, they're listening to Nine Inch Nails at three o'clock in the morning. Like I just, you know, I don't want to do, I, and it's good to just have boundaries too, to say, I don't want that for my life. I'm a grown up. And this is the treatment that I would like to have. And this in this section here is a treatment that I wouldn't like to have. And I wouldn't like to wake up on your floor at 95 degrees, you know, because there's no ventilation. And I'm just, that's just a way for me to feel good and safe and me to set up a boundary in my life to say that my mental health is important and I need to be taken, I need to be taken care of. So um, I don't sleep on people's floors that very much anymore. I do, but I, I mean, it has to be somebody that I know. I love that that perspective and that just advocating for yourself is is so great. I've slept on uh, some floors this tour, and uh, thankfully, they've, they've all been totally fine. <laughs> but I I imagine that there there might come a day where I I opt for for a, a hotel. But it's just a nice it's a nice way to tell your mind thank you. Thank you for writing these songs. Thank you for booking this tour. Thank you for getting into the van. Thank you for driving six hours. Thank you for unloading the gear. Thank you for playing the show. Thank you for unloading after the show. Thank you for selling t-shirts and records after the show. And now when you feel the most vulnerable, when you're hot, when you're hungry or angry or tired or need a rest, here's a little room that you get to spend by yourself just so that you can go ahead and just, you know, turn the fan on and be at peace inside your heart. It's just a nice way to tell the, the little, the little voice inside of your heart. Thank you. So I, you know what, Will, I do encourage you on this next, on this tour, before you get back home one night, just because, just because you deserve it, because you're a human being who's, who's deserving of dignity and respect. I want you to get yourself a hotel room on this trip. Thank you, Derek. I'll do it at least once. I love it. I love it. We're changing minds here, folks. <laughs> Let me think. I've asked a lot of the questions that I wanted to ask. Um, what do you think? What do you think about? Um, I'll ask you a couple questions. Is that okay, Will? Yeah, that'd be great. What do you think about the bands that get to have the biggest impact on me? Are the bands who really stick to their guns? You know, the bands who really say something and then they mean it. And how do you feel about bands who have a political message today that acquiesce to big, huge corporate uh, apparatus like Spotify, like Apple Music, like, you know, Facebook spending ads to sponsor, you know, normal, regular things that you should we should be using word of mouth for? How do you feel about people who are supposed to be ethically consuming and giving our money to corporations that we believe in and we're acquiescing to things like Facebook and Spotify. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really great question and a compli 
complicated question too. Let me think about that for a minute. I definitely hear what you're saying, and it's hard. At the same time, it's hard for me to fault any artist for um, doing something uh, to promote on on Spotify or Facebook because that's the system that we're in. Um, and I think it's important to um, try to have a different system and try to have something else and do something else. So I'm kind of working this out as I say it out loud. Um, one of the things that, that I jump to is, you know, even though there's no ethical consumption under capitalism, how can we still do our best to consume ethically? So part of me is kind of torn between, well, how helpful or unhelpful is it? Like, what is the, what's the net outcome uh, from an artist using a tool like, like Facebook or social media uh, to get their message out there? Because the other thing is that's maybe the only place someone might hear about a show, uh, potentially. And I, I want to, I want to, as someone who has paid for a sponsor's a sponsored ad on Facebook in the past, I'm asking this question as a broad, as a as a much more broad conversation piece. As like, mm. if this is the if this is the world that we are are participating in, and this is the world that we live in, as far as like our ethics are meeting our conscience, um, how how can I feel good about it without having to apologize? Because I don't want to have to apologize for something that isn't wrong or that I'm not doing wrong. But if I feel like I'm doing something wrong, I'm like, sorry, everybody, but I'm going to need you all. To, uh, I'm going to need 600 people to like this on Facebook so that I can, you know, so that other people can see it too, even though I don't believe in it. And I personally am conflicted to say, is it worth it to go ahead and pay a certain dollar amount so that enough people can view your thing in hopes that a third of those people will like it so that it can be viewed by people who are outside of your sphere of influence? Or do you just do stick to the actual, a different path? Do you forge a different path? Do you make a different path for yourself? I don't know the answer either. I don't it makes me feel gross when I have to think about it. And I don't want to have to feel gross. Like making art should make me feel free and excited and passionate and, and in love with myself and in love with the music and the art too. And if I have to do things that I'm like morally molasses about where I'm like, well, I guess I'm just going to, going to have to go ahead and, you know, wear a Coke, get a Coca-Cola tattoo on my forehead. So the people listen to my music, like, I don't know. That doesn't sound very punk to me. That doesn't sound like the thing that I want to participate in. I don't know. It's just a conversation that I like to have because I like to hear other perspectives on it other than my own. And I, it's not even about selling out or like not selling, you know, music or records. You know, I hope that everybody who gets to make music, 
I hope everybody has a chance to make music. I hope everybody has a chance to be in a band that wants to be in a band. You you know, practice hard and write good songs and and get out there and show your songs to the world. I think it's a good thing for everybody to do um, on whatever level you choose to do it, whether you play in basements or you go to an open mic or maybe you just you play on the Saturdays at church at three o'clock whenever they have the, the round robin and everybody gets three songs. I don't know if y'all have round robin outside of Pennsylvania, but sometimes we do a little round robin. And, you know, if that's the thing that you, you want to do to get your to get your music out and do your songs out, I think that it's super duper, super duper rewarding. I just want to make sure that the thing that got me into punk and the politics behind it are matching. And I, I, I understand that no one's going to be perfect in their steps. We're not Ian Mackay. But what there, I do want to make sure that I am being influenced and indoctrinated and guided by people who are doing things that are congruently ethic to the thing that I'd like to do. And when I, when I, when I have to feel gross about it, it's like, oh, I, I can't believe that this is what I'm asking people to do. Maybe I shouldn't be doing it. Maybe it's that good, you know, that still small voice that's inside of your heart that's saying, you know, like Geppetto in, 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 in the Pinocchio story. Maybe that's a bad idea, Will. Maybe, maybe you shouldn't maybe you shouldn't give all your money to Microsoft or you know whatever the thing's telling you to do and and I I don't know I want to I want to be in I want to be in touch with that voice inside my own head that's giving me the, the 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 steps to make but it seems like we're living in a world where everyone's acquiescing to these big huge corporations and hopes to I don't know be famous on the internet maybe I'm not sure but I don't know if that's a game that I'm interested in 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 um in playing yeah oh man I hear all that um and a, a couple different things come to mind. Um, one is just my own experience using TikTok. And I've been intentional not to pay for any TikTok boosting videos. I've been fortunate in that my videos took off by themselves um, when they did. But, you know, I would get tempted to do that when my view count would would plummet and that's by design you know tiktok would do that intentionally so yeah. creators get excited about their views their views go down and then they pay for their views to go up but at that point the reach isn't organic so a lot of the boosted things don't even do as well as just creating something interesting and valuable for someone um you got to feed the monkey Right, you know, and the monkey the, on your back is hungry. You got to make sure that those that those endorphin likes of being validated by absolute strangers is uh, it's hard to it's hard to it's hard to live without it once you had it, and they know that. And it yeah exactly, and it was hard for me too uh, when I was getting so much validation, and then when my views were dropping, it it affected me. It really did, and I didn't like how much it affected me. Um, I'm at a point now where. I'm not as obsessed with it, but I was really a little too obsessed with it for a while. And um, so, and and the other the other tension with that is like a question of like, okay, I'm I'm creating things that are helping people and valuable for people, um, but it's also a lot of completely unpaid labor, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and you know that's kind of a world we're living in now where it's so easy for these corporations to exploit our labor um you know i was in the tiktok creator fund but made maybe like 40 dollars um and you know there's always the option to um get sponsorships but that's doesn't 
hasn't felt right to me. Um, it would just with the type of thing I'm I'm creating, um, and you know I've I've pursued some of it be out of out of what felt like a necessity to get paid, just a reluctant like, well, I want to keep doing this, but I want it to be sustainable, and um, so there's. So there's that reality for me, and then I I'm thinking about this question of, you know, do we use this? Do we buy into it? Do we support it, um, or what do we do instead? One of the things I've thought about in relation to using TikTok is the story of how Mr. Rogers got started doing TV. He started TV. You may know this because he hated what he was seeing on television. Mm-hmm. And I think he understood its power for destruction and harm. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the same thing with a lot of our social media platforms is there's so much potential for harm. And if people are going to be on there and using it anyway, why not do something to make that, use that tool in an uplifting way that's going to make some difference in someone's life. Totally. So there's also that tension too. And it makes me think about, you know, we we say, you, you hear a lot in punk or anarchist discourse about, you know, burning the system to the ground. Um, and I've been thinking about a... What does it what does it actually look like to have a new system in the most effective way? Um, and I'm sort of picturing if the system we live in now is a building, and it's this terrible building where everyone's living, and uh, they don't know exact. Not everyone there knows how terrible it is. Uh, some of the people do, and. But but it's a terrible building. It's good. Maybe it's good for some, but it's but overall, it's not actually good for anybody. And I think instead of just immediately burning that building to the ground, what if a couple of the people in that building who recognized how terrible it was went next door and built a new house? You know, maybe maybe that other one is still there, but wow, look at this wonderful new building. And suddenly the people in the old building see this new building that these other people have built and what they're doing and how they're living and the ways that they're doing it. And hopefully more and more people will want to move into that neighboring new building to the point where the old building crumbles. And I think that's how I've been conceptualizing, at least for myself, um, how to crumble the system to the ground. Yeah, I think that anarchy takes a lot of work. I think it's I think it's I think it's a cooperative thing. I think it takes a lot of humility. I think it takes a lot of elbow grease. It takes a lot of listening and cooperation and. Um, I, 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 I think it's the best. I don't think we're there yet. I, I, I would love to believe that we were, that we're there and that, 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 that could be like a real, um, a thing that's possible for our lives. 
But, you know, we can't even, we have a hard time even agreeing what the truth is, is a society. I think in order for us to have a cooperative way that we're able to live without government or live without police, there has to be some cooperative ways that we're, that we're cooperating together. And I don't necessarily think that this particular moment in time we're capable of that. Um, so, um, in, in, I don't know what the best is to do. I think creating small pockets of resistance within your own life is is important. What that looks like for you, for some people, it means that they don't eat meat. For some people, it means that they don't use fossil fuels. For some people, it means they don't shop in, in department stores and they only buy their clothing secondhand. Whatever that little small piece of resistance means to you and however you can resist among, uh, against the big, huge monster of capital and greed and consumption, whatever that happens to look like for you, whatever small victory you could have, whether it's recycling the tin cans after you're done drinking your crayon apple juice or, you know, whatever that happens to be, I think we all have a role. I think we all have things that we do well at and that we can that we could do easily and efficiently that other people get to glean from and say, oh, that's a that's a small practice that they're my friend Robbie Lester. I'll just I, I, not to change gears, but just to say my friend Rob Beatty, who it plays in a band called The Ghost Right and who used to draw who has driven the Homeless Gospel Choir uh, band uh, in the past and will continue to be my driver in the future. Um, he says the reason that I'm vegan is because it means that every day I get to wake up and resist. I get to resist every day. And it's my way of saying that it's a small sacrifice for me not to have that flavor. It's a small sacrifice for me not to give in to the desires of the temptation to consume for me to say, this is a standard that I set for myself. And every day when I wake up, I know that I'm going to resist big agriculture. I know that I'm going to resist um, uh, 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 animals being subject to poor treatment because I don't put myself in a situation where I'm consumable of their of their of those products, and it has. Even though I'm not as I'm not as strict as Robbie is, and I'm not as I'm I'm not as dedicated to it as 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 Robbie happens to be. Um, it has inspired me in many ways to say, this is just one thing that I'm able to control. And every day when I wake up, this is how I resist. And this is, this is the proof that I get to do it. And it's, it was just a, a very encouraging for me to hear that. I love that. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I had fish sticks. I had fish sticks for dinner tonight. I, I, I rem for many years, I remember being, being, um, uh, spending, I don't dumpster dive anymore because I have money and I don't have to dig through the trash for my food. I leave the food, I leave the food in the trash for the people who really need to have it, who are able to go ahead and get it. Um, but for a long time I did eat out of the trash and, and, and a good piece of, a good piece of the food that I consumed on a daily basis was, uh, post waste food. Um, so sometimes, you know, sometimes you're eating donuts for three days and then sometimes, you know, there was a there was a big huge that it was called snowmageddon and i think we got like 36 inches of snow overnight and um we went into trader joe's was closed for three days so they took everything off their shelves that didn't get sold and they were throwing it away and we just backed we just backed a station wagon right up into the dumpster and just took you know all this frozen food that was sitting outside for 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 three days and we didn't i mean we didn't have a grocery bill for months and months and months wow that's 
that's legit. That yeah, is awesome. We, we were able to, yeah, we, we got back and we just had, we dumped it all out and we called everybody that we knew that also dumpster dove. And we're like, you know, if you guys are hungry, you're not even hungry. If you guys want to fill your freezer for the winter, there's enough for everybody to get. And people would just come with like big, huge, like duffel bags, like sports bags, like that held like football equipment and stuff. And they were, you know, they were taking turkeys and chicken and, and, and nuggets and, and peanut butter and a bunch of cheese and, and, and uh, frozen shrimp and things like that. And a thousand cakes. There was, I mean, not a thousand, but definitely over a hundred cakes for sure. And it was wild. Yeah. It was just, it was a cool, it was a cool experience, but I don't, you know, I don't sometimes, you know, kids will ask me, do you still go out dumpster diving? I'm like, I don't need to go out dumpster diving anymore. I didn't do it for like a fashion thing. Like, Oh, let's go head out and, you know, eat out of the trash. Um, uh, it was, it was, it was found, it was born in some ways out of necessity. Um, but yeah, I just, you know, I don't have to do it. I, I mean, if I had to do it, I would, but I don't have to, I just have money to buy groceries now, which is nice, which is another luxury that I love to afford myself. That's great. That's an awesome story too. Um, well, I think we're about at the end of our time. Um, Thank you so, so much for this, Derek. It was such a pleasure talking to you. Will, you're uh, an absolute sport. I'm super grateful for your friendship and your kindness and for the thoughtful questions. I hope I didn't sound, I hope I didn't sound in any way um, unkind or sharp to anybody. Definitely not. Not at all. Yes. Uh, I, uh, yeah. As, before we sign off, is there um, any final thoughts or things that you would like to plug or uh, mention? Yes. Um, I don't know if y'all are going to know about it before this, but I'm playing an acoustic show on Saturday with the band Tiger's Jaw and a Wilhelm Scream, and that's going to be in Philadelphia. And then the next Saturday, um, on the 17th of June, I'm going to be playing with Bad Moves, which is Max Levine Ensemble's very own um, uh, uh, um, uh, famous celebrity uh, front person. Um, uh, Spoon Boy himself will be in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I'll be playing a show with old David Combs and everybody who is in Bad Moves. And also on that show, if you guys get this out before then, um, we're going to be doing the very first batch of the pickle, the pickle harvest from this year. We're going to be doing a, a live tasting. I'm going to bring a couple jars of pickles to the Pittsburgh show, and everybody at the end of the gig, we're going to stick around and try the the first batch of pickles for this year. Oh, that sounds awesome. I really wish I could come to that. It's going to be a, it's going to be a, it's going to be a pip for sure. And then, um, this fall, um, I'm going on tour in, in August with the suicide machines and bad cop, bad cop. And then in September today, I just announced the tour with, with Harley Poe and we're going to be in the Midwest, Indianapolis, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Louisville, Kentucky, Grand Rapids, Fort Wayne, Detroit and one other place that's right on the tip of my tongue. I can't think about it. Awesome. Well, that's great. Nashville and Memphis, Nashville and Memphis are the other two places. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, if you live in any of those cities, be sure to check out that tour. That sounds so great. I wish, I wish I could join for that um, and see one of those shows. Um, Well, yeah. Thank you so much, Derek. Thanks, and, Will, for uh, having me. Peace and blessings to you. Be kind to yourself and kind to others if you can. Same to you. Thank you. See ya. We hope you enjoyed our conversation with Derek. I know that I did. I was so touched by his graciousness 
and just the wonderful person that he is and his thoughtful responses and questions. I also have to say, Derek, I blame you for my new Crab Rangoon addiction, which is a recent development for me on tour since this conversation. And I know that I will also carry with me your valuable words and insights. Thanks so much for listening. And if you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to us at podcast at backonthegrindrecords.com. You can also connect with us on Instagram at backonthegrindpod. We hope to hear from you soon. Thank you.